Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 49. In a few moments, I will also read a passage from 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. I'm beginning this morning a a three-part series this morning, Wednesday night, and next Wednesday night on the word now. Now, that will be sort of in sync with Pastor Jensen Franklin's morning series that will be the next two Sunday mornings during the same period of time on at the movies. So I hope that you will be here for all five of those worship services. The next two Wednesday nights will be on now. Next, this coming Wednesday night on right now. And then the Wednesday night after that on a new now. I hope you will be here to hear those. But this morning is going to be the most different of the three. Now, I want to ask you a question as we start. How many of you believe, truly believe in your heart, that the most important sermon you hear may be the least pleasurable to hear? How many of you really believe that? I'm glad to hear that because this is it. (laughs) Next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday night on Right Now, And the Wednesday night of that on a new now, but this morning, something Americans hate to hear. This morning's title is not now. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6, Isaiah 49, 6 through 8, and then we'll turn to 2 Corinthians. Isaiah 49, verse 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to whom man despiseth, to him whom the nations abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That's the prophecy of Isaiah. Now turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, the sixth chapter. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, Paul now refers to that passage in the present tense. That is to say, he says, this is the fulfillment of that moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if the pastor can find it. I know it's in here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Paul is writing, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. And in the day of salvation have I helped thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now put your hands on your Bible and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the next few moments that your Holy Spirit will 
reach through the veil of our flesh. Speak to us by your might in the inner person. Lord, we, we recognize and humble ourselves before you at this very moment, acknowledging this may not be a word we want to hear. Speak to us the word we need to hear. That when we leave here today, we will say in our heart of hearts, in our innermost being, the Lord himself hath spoken unto me. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God. Amen. From the very moment of the fall of sinful humanity in the Garden of Eden, God spoke the prophecy of redeeming grace. He says, yes, you've fallen. Yes, Adam has introduced sin into the lifeblood of the human race. But he says the seed of the woman will come. He speaks of Messiah even in the Garden of Eden. The seed of the woman will come and bruise the serpent's head. There are all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Isaiah's prophecy eventually came true. This prophecy which he spoke in about 750 B.C. Some 750 years later, three quarters of a millennium, Jesus comes and the soul finds its worth. We, we thank God for the fulfillment of that prophecy. But how many thousands of years passed from the prophecy of the seed of the woman in the Garden of Eden until the birth of Jesus? 750 years, three quarters of a million from the time that the, that the prophecy was spoken through Isaiah that there shall come a light to the Gentiles, the salvation of the Holy One of Israel. 750 years of atonement, 750 years, three quarters of a millennium. How many priests? How many high priests went year after year into the Holy of Holies and said, Lord, is it now? Is it now? Is it now that Messiah will come? Is it now that we will know our redemption? Is this the year of atonement? Is this it? And year after year, God said, it's coming, but not now. The thousands of years from the Garden of Eden until the, until the birth of Jesus Christ Long lay the world, the ancient hymn says, long lay the world in sin and error pining, longing. How long? How long, O oh Lord? And over and over and over again, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennium after millennium, the voice of a redemptive, caring, and loving God said, I, I hear your longing, and the answer is coming. But not now. Now that is, that is an, an incredibly difficult thing. Anna and Simeon, to whom God revealed that the coming of Messiah was no longer hundreds of years away or dozens of years away, that in their lifetime they would see Messiah. They sat by the, the temple door watching day after day after day as one baby or another comes in the arm of some loving and expectant mom. And day after day, having been said, you having been told, you will see Messiah. You will see the baby. They waited. Is it this child? Not that one. Is it this baby? Not that one. Is it today? Not today. 
How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Don't you know all the time that finally when Simeon said, it's this baby, it's this day, now, this is it. But how many other days had gone up to that moment where Simeon heard the same thing from God day after frustrating day? Not this baby. Not this day. Not now. When we consider the will of God for our lives, his will is not the only variable to be considered. We also have to consider not only God's will, but God's timing. Jesus came in the fullness of time, the scripture says. Not one day too early, not one second late. We don't know all the things that had to be prepared in the natural. When we do our historical studies of the birth of Christ, we might think of things, the preparation of the Roman Empire, all of those things. We don't know all of those things. The point is that we cannot figure all that out. It was God's perfect timing in the, in the perfect fullness of time. Once we accept God's will for our own lives, we also must submit to his timetable for our lives. We think, we tend to think, that God's yes means yes now. And it may not mean that at all. We also tend to think that his not now means not ever. And it may not mean that at all. We, we are a generation that is literally cursed with a lust for instant gratification. Now there's this sort of contemporary hobby of making up words. And so I've decided to make up one of my own. We're going to put it on the screen right now, and I th suggest that you learn this word. It will be especially important for parents to learn it. I, we, way, win. Say it with me. I, we, way, win. Say it one more time. I, we, way, win. What it means is I want what I want and I want it now. <laughs> the next time your children are in the back seat whining and crying and kicking up a fit because you won't take them to Disney World today, I want the parents to turn and look at each other and say, I, we, why, when? <laughs> Waiting is the most strenuous of all spiritual disciplines. It is literally painful. It grieves our flesh. We long not only for his word to come to us, but for his word to be fulfilled now. The problem is that sometimes once we have his promise, we're going to make it happen. We're going to force the situation. Abraham and Sarah, Sarai, Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, as they became, received the promise of God that Abraham would be the father of many nations. That word was clear, but as he grew older and older and she older and older, as they entered into their 90s, it, it became apparent to them that God's word was real, but the methodology God had not worked out, and so they decided they would take matters in their own hands. Sarai took her maid, Hagar the Egyptian, and gave her to Abraham and said, make her pregnant. And that baby, that'll be the way we'll just sort of force God's hand. God has promised us an heir. She says, I can no longer produce an heir, so we'll just do it this way. The child which Hagar bore was Ishmael. 
And we are still internationally, globally struggling with the descendants of Ishmael. When you, when you will not wait for God to fulfill his promise to you, his way in his time, you may create an Ishmael that you have to live with for a long time. You, you ladies, you need to hear what I'm telling you. I'm speaking to the single girls now. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I'm speaking to the single ladies right now. When women get all in an urgent thing and say, God has spoken to me, I'm going to have a good marriage, I'll have children, I'll have a, a great husband, and then they won't wait. They won't wait because they say to themselves one of the stupidest things that a girl has ever said to herself in all of life. And that stupid thing is a bad husband is better than no husband at all. Mm-mm, that is not true. There are some women in this room at this service that will say, let me explain it to you. <laughs> wait, I say, wait on the Lord. There is a, there is a great scene in uh, the movie Braveheart, Mel Gibson's movie Braveheart, where the, the English cavalry, heavily mounted armored cavalry, are, are, are bearing down on relatively uh, defenseless Scottish troops. The troops have nothing. They have no cavalry. They have no great horses. They don't have all the that. They just have axes and swords and knives. And they're just massed at the bottom of this hill. And the cavalry, the English cavalry, is just bearing down on them with lances and just bearing down. And Wallace, the general... Wallace stands at the end and he just keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. Hold, hold. And the English cavalry is just charging down the hill, just coming at them. You can see the whites of their eyes. You can see the smoke coming out of the, the horse's nostrils. And the Scottish guys are just cutting their eyes over at the general. Like you can see them saying, now, how about now? Because I can, I can read that guy's name tag. And Wallace just keeps saying the same thing. Hold, hold. And then just at the last minute, he yells, and now, and they reach down and pick up massive lances. It's too late now for the cavalry charge to stop or turn. And they run onto the lances and are defeated. Now, I just want to say to you, there are people under the sound of my voice today to whom God has given a word, a prophecy, a promise, a vision, a dream. It is not invalid. It's real. It's yours. Hold it. Hold on to it. But then listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit saying to you, hold, hold. Wait, I say, wait on the Lord. Now, how to wait? This passage has gone up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's a great verse. But how do I wait? Waiting on the Lord is not just twiddling your thumbs. It doesn't mean just sitting there doing nothing. Don't waste today. Prepare for tomorrow. Prepare for the moment. Prepare for the moment. Wednesday night, I'm going to preach the next in this series. Right now. There'll come a moment where you hear God say, all right, you've waited and you've waited. Right now. Now, that's a great moment, but this morning, it's not now. And God is saying, while it's not now, while now is not now, make use of the time. 
We, we, we read this passage in Ephesians uh, 5 and 16 where it says, redeem the time. That's a very unusual turn of phrase because redeem is a, a mercantile terminology. It's about commerce. It's about buying, purchasing, uh, winning back, if you will. So what does God mean when he says redeem the time? It's as if he says, purchase out of the wastefulness of laziness and self-indulgence, purchase that time back, redeem it, and make it useful. Use it now. Learn all you can. I spent more than 16 years as the president of two different universities. And I, if there was one consistent theme I preached to college students, it was this, don't waste these years. I know you've got a dream. I know God has given you a vision. I know some of you are going to own companies and be CEOs and leaders and pastors of megachurches. But right now, you've got to like, you know, pass algebra. <laughs> if you can just... Make this time work. Learn all you can. Do well where you are now. I've got a word this morning, and I, I don't want it to sound harsh or condescending in any way, but I, I, I want to say this. If you cannot find the job you want, do well the job you can get. Do well the job you can get to the glory of God. Let God lift you up. Let God lift you up. Learn all you can. Redeem the time. Do well what you are doing right now. And then do not despise the day of small beginnings. We have always have at Free Chapel. We always, and they are welcome. We love it. But we always have pastors, particularly young pastors. This morning I had a whole graduate class from a university that we hear this morning, the first service. And we love that. But there's always the temptation for them to come and say, oh, this is great. This is what I want. I, I, okay, pastor, send me to any church the size of Free Chapel. I'm, I'm Okay, Lord, I'm ready to serve anywhere as long as it's Free Chapel. But, but what they, they look at guys like Jensen Franklin and me, and they think that we sprang full grown from the forehead of Zeus. They don't understand the miles and miles and miles that are behind us on our odometer. Jensen Franklin didn't walk in here and to this church, this size, this way, this shape, this dimension. When Jensen Franklin became the pastor of Free Chapel, it was a little tiny congregational holiness church perched on the left shoulder of Gainesville. It's not exactly Manhattan. It had like 120 people. And they called Jensen to be the pastor. And everybody, his family, friends, everybody said, oh, Jensen, don't. That, that little tiny church is a graveyard. It's a graveyard. Don't go there. Other people look at this and they're saying, oh, Lord, so bury me. <laughs> but Jensen, if he had despised that day of small beginnings, he never would have had the opportunity to serve here now. I... I I am blessed. Allison and I are blessed to be here at Free Chapel. We're blessed. But I think back over my own life. I think back to the, to the times of, of my own life. When I, I resigned 
the last, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 1975, and resigned my last little Methodist church that I pastored and launched out, Allison and I launched out into Global Servants, our little evangelistic and missions organization. It was nothing. And we were living, uh, anyone who's ever done startup evangelism, it's, it's, it's just constant work and stress and poverty, beyond words poverty, and, and was so hard and difficult. I can remember when Allison and I stood in the luggage department at a Kmart. And I was on the road all the time, constantly trying to decide if I could afford to buy a suitcase. We didn't have a suitcase. And I, I looked at the prices in the Kmart and I said, baby, I, I cannot in good conscience spend money on a suitcase that I'm going to take on the road and leave you at home with three little children when you could use that money. I'm not going to do that. So I put my stuff in a cardboard box and I put it in the boot of my car. And, and you know, people say, we'll fly you here to preach or we'll fly you there. I'd say, no, no, no. You send me the money for the airline ticket. I will drive. <laughs> and you do the first night in Ohio and the second night in Louisiana and the third night in Oklahoma. You know, it's just, and you just drive. All you need to start an evangelism is two sermons and a fast car. <laughs> and they'd say, we'll put you in a motel. I'd say, no, I want to stay in people's homes. Give me the money that you would spend on the hotel. And they put me in people's homes. And then I would wait until everybody was asleep in the house and sneak out to the car, get my clothes out of the boot of the car because I was ashamed of that cardboard box. I didn't want people to realize that the evangelist couldn't afford a suitcase. If you, if you despise the day of small beginnings, how can God bring you at the right time to the place where he wants to use you at a different level, at a different kind of altitude? When I, uh, when I came to the, about 12 or 13 years of that, both in the United States and abroad, just living hand to mouth in poverty. Allison was so faithful and gracious, waiting year after year while I was traveling and doing this work. But when our kids began to enter into junior high school, I felt it was time to come home, be home. And I, I had the dream of pastoring a church in the Atlanta area. It was so clear to me. And I wanted to pastor an inner city urban church right downtown. I went into the most difficult, most challenging area of downtown Atlanta. And I, I said, this is where I want to build a church. And I found a run, I found a rundown, abandoned, uh, roller rink called the Joyland Roller Rink. I said, this is it. This is it. I could even think of the name Joyland Church. You, now you can't beat that. And so I, I raised a little money, $5,000 for the earnest money on that and paid the earnest money. And then my dad went with me and we went down to meet the real estate agent and go in and view the property. And we went in, the real estate agent was there with a policeman. And I said, why is the cop here? The policeman said, well, we found two dead bodies in here last week. And we just, I'm just not going in, you know, and I, my dad, my dad said, oh, Mark, we don't want to do this. We don't, and to me, I said, dead bodies. I said, this is great. This is great. A church full of dead bodies. I've pastored many of these. I can do this. So we pried the boards that had been nailed across the door. We went in, the policeman had a flashlight and his hand on his 
pistol and everything. We went in, water dripping everywhere. My dad said, Mark, please. I said, no, daddy, this is it. This is it. A couple of weeks later, my lawyer called and he said, Dr. Rutland, we, we can't close on that property. If you'll come down to my office and pick up your earnest money check. He said, there's a mix up on the deed and title and everything like that. And so we're going to refund your earnest money. And it's, that's not going to happen. I drove down to his office and got the $5,000 check and put it in my pocket and drove home. I was so discouraged. I just kept saying, Lord, you give me a, a vision, a dream of pastoring a church in the United States, of being at a great church. I'd like to build one. I want to build one downtown. I want to do this. Lord, don't, don't you love me? He said, I love you, but not now. Not now. Oh, it was hard to hear. I walked in the house. This is a true story. I walked in the house. Allison was cooking supper, and I just tossed that $5,000 check over on the dinner table. And I said, well, the deal's off. I lost the joy land. It's gone. I said, I think I've lost my joy with it. And Allison said, she never turned away from what she was cooking. She said, if God has closed that door, you don't know which door he'll open next. I don't, I don't know about the other men in this room. I can't speak for you. I hate it when God speaks through my wife. No, I hate that. Right at that moment. Listen, this is a true story. At that very moment, she said, if God closes one door, he'll open another one. The phone rang. I picked the phone up. A voice on the other end of the phone said, my name is Dr. Paul Walker. I'm the senior pastor at the Mount Perrin Church of God. I'd like to know if you would come and join us as the co-preacher at my church. I thought it was one of my nitwit friends <laughs> mocking me because I'd lost the joy land. So I said, oh, right, you're Paul Walker and I'm Robert E. Lee. <laughs> Dead silence on the other end of the phone. If you, if you know Dr. Walker, you will understand the story I'm telling you. He never commented. He didn't respond. He just put the needle back on the other end of the record and started over again. He said, my name is Dr. Paul Walker. I'm the senior pastor at the Mount Perrin Church of God, and I'd like to know if you would come and join me on the preaching team. I put my hand over the phone. I said, it's Paul Walker. <laughs> oh, I was frustrated. I was so frustrated that the joy land closed in my fingertips. God said, not now, not now, not there, not here. It so frustrated me. But if if he had not closed that door, I went from there to Mount Perrin Church of God, from there to Calvary Church in Orlando, from there to Southeastern University, from there to Oral Roberts University, and from Oral Roberts University to heaven on earth, right here. I could have, I could have sat in some house in some godforsaken foreign country, Michigan or something, and sit there, <laughs> my clothes in my little cardboard box, and said, "Lord, I want to preach at a mega church in Gainesville." And the Lord would have said, "Not now. Hold, hold." Isn't it irritating when God says that? It grieves our flesh. It pains us. 
but we redeem the time. We wait on the Lord and we are faithful in the, in the things that we do and we do not despise small beginnings. Let me tell you about some people. Two women, Jessica Newman and Catherine Doyle, worked in the garment industry. They were employees at the same company. They said, this company is not the way to do this. They had vague ideas. They talked. They processed. They dreamed together. They had many conversations. Should we start our own company? Not now. Should we start our own company? Not now. Year after year after year until their idea coalesced, until it came to, to make shape and form, and they had it clear in their minds exactly what they wanted to do, their business plan, their ideas. The company that they were working for sold, and they lost their jobs. And they heard, now. And they launched out a new company called Dobbins. Dobbins is an old English word which means hard work. And that company now is worth millions and millions of dollars because Jessica Newman and Catherine Doyle waited. Leo Goodwin was born in 1886. He labored in total anonymity in the insurance industry. Year after year, decade after decade, realizing there's a better way to do this. There's a market we're not reaching. There's a business plan that nobody's using. There's a way to cut out the middleman and increase profit margin. There's a better way to do this. But he waited. He said, the time is not right. All through his 20s, all through his 30s, all through his 40s, stayed in his job, learned all that he could learn, was faithful where he was for more than 30 years. And in his early 50s, he launched out and started his own company. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Leo Goodwin and his wife worked together for 12 years without a salary. But when he died, that little insurance company, which he named Geico, was worth billions of dollars. When God gives you that dream, that vision, you will have a husband, the child will come, the building will be yours, whatever it is, receive it, hold it, and then listen for the next thing God says. He say, Lord, is it mine? Is this my dream? Is this my vision? Yes, but not now. Don't press through. Don't burst past the will and purpose of God and the timing of God. When I was in my freshman year in college, just at the end of the Civil War. <laughs> well, it hurts me when you laugh at me. <laughs> there was a young movie star that had burst onto the scene. He was a huge success. He had made his first movie. His name was Dustin Hoffman, and he had just starred in a movie called The Graduate. Nominated for an Academy Award for his first screen on-screen performance in a starring role. He came to speak at a theater group that I was a part of, a big group, large theater like this. So I sat back in the audience, and he spoke and was interviewed, and we all just wanted to see him. And then finally, they said, well, maybe there's some questions from the audience. I was way in the back, but there was a kid in the front who raised his hand. First question. And he said, I have a question. How good does it feel to be an overnight success? Oh, my. That was the wrong question. <laughs> Hoffman jumped up from his chair so fast and violently that he turned his chair over. The interviewer just went like this. And Hoffman charged out to the edge of the stage. And he said, don't even say it to me. Don't even say it in my presence. He said, I hate that phrase. Overnight success, 
He said, maybe there are overnight successes. Maybe some people are. He said, I don't know anything about it. I've never experienced it. He said, let me tell you about an overnight success. Leave high school and move to New York to become an actor. Spend the next 20 years as a failure. Live in a walk-up tenement flat. Working as a stagehand off-Broadway. Then finally you get your big break, a dog food commercial. And he said, then finally, in your 30s, you get the opportunity to play a college boy in his early 20s, and you find the wonderful opportunity of the graduate. And he said, after you've gone through all that, all after all the suffering, after all of the eating nothing but soda crackers, year after year after year, after nothing but dog food commercials and working as a stagehand, you get a break. And then, then you tell me what it means to be an overnight success. You, you have to come to that place where you say, Lord, I'm going to thrive. I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to serve. I'm going to learn. I'm going to excel where I am, where I am. And then finally, you put your trust not in the will of God or even in the timing of God, but ultimately in the nature of God, in the goodness of God. Yes, it's his will. Yes, it's his timing. But his will and his timing for our lives flow out of his goodness. During those years of hard work and evangelism and poverty and all the rest of it, Allison and I worked our way through master's degrees. Both of us have a master's degree. And then a doctoral degree. And there were times when we were just scrimping, saving money, penny-pinching. And we kept saying, there were times when Allison would say, tell me again why we're doing this doctorate. <laughs> why, why, why are you doing a doctorate? And I, I said, baby, I don't know. I just know that right now I can do it. Right now I'm going to do it. Right now I'm going to take this on. I don't know how God will use it. It never crossed my mind. I want you to hear this. It never crossed my mind that I would be invited to be the president of a university or that I would ever serve in two universities or that I would be a part of the, of the, the administration and the leadership and the presidency of turnarounds of both of those universities. It never crossed my mind. I just knew that God was saying, get this education now. I would say, Lord, am I going to use this PhD? He said, yes. I said, when? He said, not now. <laughs> In a sense, this is even true of heaven itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 ends with these words. When it says, for now, we see through a glass darkly, like looking through a smoky glass. But then we shall see face to face. For now... We know things in part, but then we shall know even as we are known. So God says to us, I've come that you might have life eternal. I've come that you might have abundant life. And we say, Lord, is this, is this heaven? Is this heaven? He says, yes, no. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Do I have eternal life? Yes, you do, he says, right now. Right now, Lord, this is eternal life. He says, yes, right now, but not now. He says, right now, you're walking in eternal life, 
but you're still seeing it smoky. We say, Lord, I want to see you. I want to see you face to face. I want to know. I want to understand. I want to know things. Right now, I just feel like I'm groping in the dark sometimes. Lord, when will I ever look on your face? When will I ever, when will I ever have perfect knowledge? He says, not now, but it's coming. Trust, trust in the character and nature of God. When what you're going through makes no sense. When you feel that you've got to, I've got to get out of this. I've got to change. I've got to do, I've got to make something happen. I'm just going to marry the first idiot that comes through the door. <laughs> Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Hold. You say, now, Lord, now, Lord. And he says, I love you. And I'm going to bless you. I am blessing you. But not now. Hold on, he says. Here's the hardest thing in the world to hear from God. Sit still. Be still. And know that I'm God. Say, Lord, what do I do? How do I fix this? How do I change this? The parents who spend countless amounts of emotional and spiritual energy trying to fix things for their kids. Say, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do I change this? I'm going to call this principal and give them a piece of my mind. <laughs> and Lord says, the Lord says, be still and know that I'm God. When you can walk into that place, you will find contentment and peace. It doesn't give away your dream. It gives God time to bring the dream to pass. His way, His time. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.